My name is Claudia Pergola, a caregiver advocate and author of two books. I am confronted daily with families in need. They all seek the one thing that seniors can provide them. They're looking to maintain their legacy. I'm Debbie Walpoff, and as founder and CEO of Merck's Payments, I believe that success is not defined by wealth. Success is defined by the people that you're inspired by your actions. My name is Clelia Pergola, and I am here to focus on your legacy. Welcome to What's Your Legacy, where we have an intimate conversation about the power of legacy, your legacy. My co-host is Clelia Pergola, COO of New Jersey Elder Law Center at Goldberg Law Group. Their firm handles estates, documents, taxes, government benefits, assets, homes, and protecting the loved ones as they age. Legacy is so much more than money and personal property. They are the people and the lasting impact they have on their family, friends, and network. My name is Debbie Walpoff, and my focus as founder of CEO of Merck's Payments is to partner with businesses and organizations to reduce merchant services costs, enhance customer experience, and ensure the safety and security of their payments. We believe, Clelia and I, that success is not defined by wealth, power, or status, but can only be found through the ability to love, laugh, and live. Ultimately, success is defined by the people that were inspired by your actions to do great things. The people that were comforted by your empathy and compassion. Those people that dare to journey outside their comfort zone due to your encouragement and support. These things define legacy and your legacy is the mark you leave on the world. Clelia and I spent our entire professional careers giving back to our communities and we are so excited to be highlighting these amazing women and their achievements. That's why we're so proud to bring you What's Your Legacy podcast. Debbie, I'm so excited that you're joining me. Welcome, Maggie Goldberg. I was introduced to her by Debbie. Let me introduce you all to her. She is president and CEO of the Christopher and Dana Ree Foundation. She leads the only national paralysis-focused organization centered around a dual mission, Today's Care, Tomorrow's Cure. Maggie has served with the foundation for more than 20 years, helping drive its mission to cure spinal cord injury by advancing innovative research and improving the quality of life for individuals and families impacted by paralysis. The, found, the foundation's mission is extremely personal for Maggie, and we're going to get into that. Uh, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, Maggie joined the Re Foundation in 2000 and has held numerous leadership roles during her tenure. She recently served as COO, providing the leadership, management, and vision to grow the organization. Before that, Maggie served as Vice President of Policy and Programs, which included overseeing the Foundation's National Paralysis Resource Center. And she has also served as Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Maggie started her career in Washington, D.C., working with Wittick Combs Communications, Feld Entertainment, and U.S. Senator Arlen Specter. 
Maggie is a wife, a mother of two teenage daughters. She lives in Morris Plains, New Jersey, where she enjoys working out, spending time with friends, travels, and her two dogs, Zoe and Ziggy. Maggie, welcome. I love the names of your dogs. That is the cutest thing. Is there a story behind that? Um, no, we actually, um, since it's a female dominated household with two daughters and myself, we've given my husband, um, the opportunity to name our dogs. So they're usually named after, uh, reggae artists. So our first dog was Augustus Pablo then it's Ziggy Marley. And then we thought having two Z's would be cute. So Zoe's not really named for anybody. It's just to match her brother. <laughs> How cute. So I have heard so many good things about you um, and the Re Foundation. Debbie is very involved and she's a big fan of yours. I'm not going to act like she stalks you at all, but um, <laughs> very big fan. So I'm excited that you're on our show. I first want to get into, I know when we spoke, you told me a little bit about your story as far as your connection um, and you had an incident as uh, a child. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, um, when I was 16, I was a passenger in a car accident with one of my closest friends. We were just driving and going out for ice cream. Um, she made a left-hand turn too soon. Uh, the other person was speeding, came in, crashed the car, crashed into my side, and I broke my neck in two places at the C2 vertebrae. So I was very lucky not to have neurological damage. Um, this was back in 1988. So insurance was a lot different then. I spent eight days in the hospital. Now I probably barely would have spent a night if that. I was <laughs> placed in a halo brace. Um, I had to uh, go through physical therapy to learn how to walk with the, with the halo brace. I was unable to go back to school full time um, for the first several months. And it was a total of six months of braces and PT until I could really resume life uh, back to normal. So it was, um, you know, quite a harrowing, harrowing experience for me as a 16-year-old. I, I had attended boarding school and could no longer go back to boarding school. Um, and it just sort of, I think at the time, you know, I thought, okay, what, what, how do I make sense of this? And I really think in hindsight, it put me on the trajectory towards a career in advocacy. So you just mentioned so many things and that <laughs> had set up your career, but you probably weren't even thinking about it. First of all, you went to boarding school. Kids didn't do that back then. Was that your choice or were you one of those troubled children? No, that they no, not at all. Not at all. No, my, my mother, um, my parents are both from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and my mother had gone to, she grew up in the city of Harrisburg and went to boarding school. And she was a very big believer of it. And I went to a very small private school that was the only uh, non-parochial school in the area. And believe it or not, there were 23 kids in my class. So, and, and the public schools at, at the time were not as great as they are in New, New Jersey, for example, where I live now. So I thought it sounded cool. And I ended up uh, being accepted into the first class of girls at the Lawrenceville school in 1987. So it was nice because it was still within driving distance of home, but truth be told, I was pretty homesick. My parents had just gotten divorced. Um, I, you know, it was, you know, by, by the second semester, I was fine, but I think I can't imagine sending my 15 year old daughter away. Like, I, I don't know how my mom did it. And my dad was very against it. So, um, it, all things happened for a reason, I think, and I'm glad that I graduated. 
Absolutely. So when I know what that halo looks like, I've been involved in paralysis and fundraising for paralysis for over three decades. I mean, when you woke up in the hospital, was it just like, oh my God, where, where will my life go from here? Or were they confident from the beginning that you would regain your, they were, they were confident. They, you know, it was very little information. I felt very alone. You know, parents didn't stay in the hospital overnight. Then I just remember being completely by myself that first night. They didn't even let my parents in the room when they actually placed the halo on me. They just, I remember them saying like, don't move and, and screwing these screws in my, in my skull right here and here. And then I remember, um, a few days later, they had to tighten the screws. And that's probably oh. the most pain I've ever been. Oh, my gosh. So it was just, I mean, it was traumatizing. Like, you know, there were things that happened just, you know, going to the bathroom. It was just, it was a really, and I just think it made me, you know, it added to my empathy in, in terms of what people, it was just a, it was just a tiny taste of what people going through paralysis experience. Um, but you know, the truth is I, I went back to school. I played, I went, I was able to ski again. I played softball that spring. Um, I went on with my life and it really wasn't until Christopher Reeve was injured a couple of years later at the same level that I was when I said, oh my God, like I was really lucky. I know now I understand what this means. Um, and, and that's, you know, I'll, I'll explain later, but my, my career is really serendipitous. Talk about legacy. I mean, we haven't even gotten to it, but there was a premonition based on circumstance at 16 that led your whole career trajectory. So uh, obviously you went to college. After college, you probably had that in the back of your mind, but you were probably still having fun. What what was your next step? What was in in your mind? What did you think you were going to do with your life? And then how'd you wind up here? (laughs) I thought I was going to be go to law school all throughout college. I was, you know, a diplomatic history major and a Spanish minor. I love languages. I studied abroad. I wanted to travel. So I had like three different ideas of what I wanted to do. And then at the end of junior year, um, in the early nineties, my, my father was an attorney, kept sending me these articles from law journals about how lawyers weren't able to get jobs. And um, I started asking myself the question, like, why do you want to be a lawyer? And I couldn't answer it. And so my senior year, I took second semester senior year at Penn, I took my first communications class. And it was like, ah, like one of those moments. And I thought, why, why did I not figure this out earlier? Like it was a, an amazing class. And um, I, I had a lot of anxiety my senior year because I was like, I'm graduating from this phenomenal school and I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And I, it was a lot of stress and anxiety. So I was very, um, you know, driven and assertive. I knew I wanted to live in Washington, D.C. I had an internship there the summer before my senior year. And I, um, you know, back then, I think we there was no email. I think I was literally writing letters and making phone calls to Penn alumni just asking for informational interviews. So I talked to everyone and anyone I could in Washington and I ended up with a job um, in July and after I graduated in Senator Specter's office. And I call that my master's degree. I mean, that was actually absolutely what I wanted to do. And that was my entree into advocacy. And it was it was amazing. Um, and I and I actually fell into communications. I was there for a couple of months and they said, OK, you can you know, we're happy with your work. We have two openings. You can do the public policy track or communications. And I chose communications and I had a boss 
who literally we shared an office with one other person and she taught me everything on the job, how to write a press release, how to pitch the media, how to brief the senator, how to produce a radio show. She was so incredibly generous to me um, and I will forever be grateful for that. Communications is so important in everything that you do. I don't think that there's enough emphasis on communication. I feel like it should be taught in high school. Um, although we are talking to our kids about, you know, more of our feelings. So, um, but as far as communications, do you think that there's any connection um, between, you know, what happened to you when you were 16 and the communications degree? Well, I didn't, my, my degree was not in communications. It was actually in history. And so I think my history degree provided me with strong analytical skills, and most importantly, the writing skills, which I think is sometimes a dying art form. It's so hard to find good writers. So I am a, a big proponent of a good liberal, art, liberal arts education. And I feel, you know, when people feel like they can't um, major in English or, you know, some of these degrees, I, I'm encouraging them to tell them, no, you are set up with these fundamental skills. Don't put all this pressure on yourself to, you know, you, you should go to college to find yourself and learn and take all of these courses. Um, but to answer your question, um, my high school, we had to give a senior speech and that was required to graduate. So I had to stand up in front of the whole, I think it was the entire high school, which was tiny, but still, <laughs> um, but it was my first public speak, you know, speaking experience in front of a hundred people. And I spoke about my experience of breaking my neck. And um, it was it was videotaped at the time. And I think that was, you know, my first taste of communications. That is a lot of pressure. What high, what high school did you go to? It was it Lawrenceville. Was, she went back no, to. No, no, I didn't. I ended up going to the Harrisburg. I went to the Harrisburg Academy. That's where I graduated from. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. That's a lot of pressure for a senior. But, you know, you had a class and, you know, you worked with the teacher and there was a lot of editing and you had small groups and there were several drafts. And, you know, I think it made me a more confident speaker today. It's a it's a really important skill. So did you have trouble with that speech? Like, did you did you get a lot of nerves? Like, I can only imagine as a kid and I didn't like communications at all or public speaking. Like, did you find it challenging or was it? um it, like wasn't challenging. it wasn't challenging because I was always outgoing and social. Um, the, you know, I ran for student council. I was, you know, I played sport. I was, that wasn't the issue. I had a bat mitzvah. So I think that also prepares you for being, you know, speaking in front of people. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge for me, the hardest part was addressing that my friend who also went to the school was driving the car wow. and having to be sensitive and empathetic to that situation. Tell, telling your story, but also telling hers in a way that didn't hurt her and didn't hurt her reputation. I'm sure you, I know you, you're a very considerate, empathetic person, but to get to the heart of it, she probably made the turn illegally or too soon. And because of that, right. you know, everything happens for a reason, right? If but was, here we are, you know, ever, we're still really close friends. She's still one of my closest friends. So it was a rough wow. year, to, you know, rough couple of years, but, but we got through it. And she's not only a really good friend of mine, but my husband's as well. That's wonderful. So how did you transition from politics 
to where you are now? So I, um, working on Capitol Hill is, I mean, now I can't even imagine working there, but (laughs) at the time, you know, it's exhausting. It's very long hours. It's very little pay. Um, you're almost always on call. So it was, it being there just under two years felt like I was there for about five years. So it was time to transition. And I had, you know, I had said earlier that there were a couple of things in my mind that I wanted to do. And one of them was always sports marketing. And I um, didn't really know how to get into that. But I had a family friend who said, we have an opening at um, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, which is owned by Feld Entertainment. And I said, well, I'm not a big circus person, but let me look into this. It sounds fun. <laughs> and it was an incredible experience because getting back to the communications part, we wrote about, we had every crisis you could possibly imagine in the two years that I was there. We um, had, you know, so you had the the animal rights activists. We had to deal with that. We had um, an, a lion tamer get attacked. <gasps> and ironically, I was all of maybe 25, 26 years old. I was in Richmond, Virginia by myself on opening night. And we had a high wire walker fall and become paralyzed. And I was quoted in the Washington Post. And, you know, I was dealing with all this and writing, you know, performer bios and promoting, um, you know, a wedding between a clown and a, and a dancer. I mean, it's just around the gamut, but it, it sounded was, like a circus. It was literally a circus. <laughs> and I worked, I worked very closely with our government relations team. So it was like not at all what you would expect. And um, they were actually, uh, most companies, you know, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Most, they were, they were going to regionalize. And so some, my boss had said to me, you know, we're going to reorg you know, in order to grow as a company, you might have to leave this area. And I was like, I don't want to leave Washington. So it was, I said, you know what, this is really fun. I traveled the whole country. I had all these experiences, but I said, I didn't move to Washington to work for the circus. <laughs> <laughs> I said, let me try to find something else. So I started interviewing with PR agencies and I had an interview with Whitcomb's Communications and um, really didn't know m- much about them. They were a very small boutique agency who had really started um, LGBT marketing before anyone else had that was their niche but they were just also starting a disability and health practice and that's what they were interviewing for so I didn't know this at the time but when they interviewed me they had just landed the Christopher Reeve Foundation and American Paralysis Association accounts so um, I told them my story and I got the job and for two years I served as basically a consultant but an in-house communications person for the foundations because they didn't have one and we oversaw the merger in 1999 of the two groups and then in 2000 they they ended up hiring me and I moved to New Jersey. You've always been telling stories it's incredible (laughs) whether it's the circus performers or your story or Christopher and Dana Reeve and their mission I mean, we started out this conversation, how important the art of communications is. And thank goodness someone with your talent is leading the charge. How do you feel um, in this day and age with everything that's going on, even as a mother, um, how what advice can you give the community to... Um, to better the the culture that we have, even if it's in just around the few people that we surround ourselves with. I think being nice goes a long way. Um, be transparent. I, I've always really admired people. You know, my my oldest daughter is tough, and she doesn't back down 
from a fight. She she is not scared of confrontation, unlike me. And what I admire most about her is I always say she will tell something to someone's face. Like she won't, whatever she says behind someone's back, she'll say to their face. And so I actually really admire her honesty. And I think honesty is also something that, you know, to a fault, like, <laughs> you don't want to be mean, but I think that honesty is really, you know, a value trait as well. So um, I just think that there's, you know, you have to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes. Um, I'll, I'll tell you another story. My father is, and not to get political, but my father um, is very elderly and lives by himself and his neighbor across the street had political signs all over his house of the opposite party. And so of course we made some assumptions and, you know, for a year and this couple has been the sweetest couple to him, you know, checking in on him, bringing him food. And I just think you have to like, sometimes not judge a book by its cover and really um, give people the benefit of the doubt. We have more in common. And unfortunately, what I was going to ask you, and, and it goes to say, you know, PR has changed so much with social media. And so how do you factor that in? And how do you tell this story when you have so such short attention spans by everyone because they're used to 140 characters on Twitter and they're just used, you know, the media. Debbie knows that 140 characters on Twitter. <laughs> That, that's all my husband reads. <laughs> no books, just Twitter um, and contracts, which is so boring. But, um, you know, how? how? How do we get our message across and how can we unite when we have these those polarizing opinions? I mean, I think I think the whole country or the same people in the country are asking that. So it's, it's sort of a twofold question is how do you share your opinion without inciting anger or an argument? And then there's how do you do it succinctly and, and, and in this culture? So, um, you know, it's funny, my, my daughter and I were having conversations about um, journalism and media and balancing it like in sort of like the ADHD age and everything has to be like three minutes or less, but that's about all we can absorb. So it's so important that your message is succinct and to the point and factual. Um, and, you know, that's really all, all you can do, right? I mean, from our perspective at the Reed Foundation, it's, it's storytelling. We want people to know about people living with paralysis um, because we need to spread awareness. You know, if you're not personally impacted, why should you care? So from my perspective, you know, that's why should you care? Exactly. But I usually get the phone calls, right? I know you're involved. So-and-so had an accident. I need help. And they're always the first I call. Even even the, even this week, someone ha had an issue. I connected with Alan. Alan's going to connect with the right doctor for, for what he needs. I mean, the resources, the outreach, the research is can you just talk about the research just a little bit? Just, I know we're getting off legacy, but I'm just so passionate about this. And I feel that when we started, it was like a moonshot idea, right? right. You know, right. To, I'll walk again. Alan's handle, I'll walk. Yeah. We are so close. Well, and, you know, we're talking about legacy. You could do right. a whole program on Debbie and her legacy and her generosity. Debbie is a, is a gem and a gift to us. So thank you. I just have, I can't, I can't not say that. So thank you. 
Um, so we are, you know, we talk about cures and treatments where maybe 20 years ago it was the cure. Everyone talked about standing, stepping, you know, walking because of one cure. And what we know about spinal cord injuries, every injury is different. So there's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a combination. It might be drug and physical therapy and a device. Um, that's what we know now. And everything's going to have to be prescribed for each person. But we are so excited because um, there are stimulators now, epidural stimulators that are either implanted in, within the skin on top of the spinal cord, or there's another one that's on top of the skin and we're getting results. Um, the person that Debbie's re uh, referring to is her dear friend, Alan, who's been spinal cord injured for 34 years, who is able to move his hands after being a participant in a clinical trial with the epidural stimulator, um, the transcutaneous over the skin is part of a clinical trial at the University of Miami earlier this year, only you know four months long. And not only is he has he regained function in his hands, but he hasn't lost the function since he left the study. Um, so that's just one wow. example. Talk about legacy. I mean, I can't believe we're, we're getting there. We're getting there with the foundation. We're getting there with everything that, that you've been happening for, for so many years. Stay tuned for our next episode.